I am grateful to be with you today. Introductions are always hard, because I know I'm a cracked clay vessel, by God's grace, and uh, ground is level at the foot of the cross, but I'm thankful that God uses cracked clay vessels, and He deserves all the glory. Uh, one of the blessings of my life is uh, I pastored before, and being a seminary prof is to have people like Mark and others in my life who we can intersect and be a blessing to one another and to see what God's doing in and through them for his glory. We're all in perfect good. Yeah. All right. So we're going to look at Second Chronicles 20 today. You had notes in the back you could pick up. And um, the PowerPoint is meant to help. I have outline points and maps. And what I'm trying to do in this setting is to uh, help you understand, by the way, we are doing an Israel trip in June with Lighthouse Bible Church folks, and uh, it would be great, great to have some of you with me and the uh, Lighthouse folks. And uh, what I'm trying to do is help you see how geography intersected with the passage helps shed light on what that passage means and signifies. And so try to think in that direction. I'm speaking at Lighthouse San Diego in a month and a half or so, a similar kind of a deal. And uh, just looking forward to the time to uh, be with Lighthouse folks. I've been here a handful of times. Some of you know me, some of you don't. But I'm grateful for what God's doing here in particular and at the other Lighthouse churches. Maybe just for a moment let me pray. And then we'll jump in. Thank you, Lord, for being an awesome God who works in time and place. You've intervened in human history numerous times for your glory, and there are things for us to learn through those interventions. I pray that our time together in Second Chronicles 20 primarily would help us to see that you're a, a God who does what he says, totally reliable. And you ask that we would trust you, live lives of dependence. And you pray to help us to do that for your glory. Hide your servant behind the cross. And may he receive all the prominence and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have um, course. Next there we go. Next slide. There we go. We enjoy the life-transforming power of the gospel as those who have been transformed, or those who have trusted in the total sufficiency of Christ's death on our benefit, in our place, on the cross. And he did that to provide the basis for the forgiveness of our sins. So many of you here today are here as Christ followers whose lives have been transformed because at one point in time you repented of your sins and you trusted that what God said in his word was available to you through Christ for your sins and for your eternal destiny, salvation was available. And you had to trust in him and his promise. So faith, trust, and dependence are also essential for every realm of our walk with God. In this message, maybe I'll just hit the next slide. Okay, so... Sure. 
So in this message here is one of the main points of focus I have here, and that's that one of the most important virtues for a Christ follower to pursue throughout life is dependence on the Lord. A longer conversation, I would tell you it's um, humility and dependence are these two core values for a believer to grow in Christ. They're, they're, They're related, and I can't pursue that this morning, but dependence is one of those. And we find this in lots of passages. Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him his righteousness. Psalm 37, 4, take delight in the Lord. Make him your focus, which is the idea of for dependence, and he will give you your heart's desires. We have John three sixteen, which many of us know. By heart, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so this call to belief, whether it's for salvation or for life, is central. Just like we began our relationship with God through faith, by the faith, Paul in Galatians tells us that we must continue our walk with him by faith. We rest in his promise. We trust our great God to forgive us for, for our daily sins if we confess with a heart of repentance. We can live a life for his glory by relying on the enabling power of the Spirit to live that life that's beyond us on our own. So on and on, there are ways that faith, dependence, trust should be a core value for the life of a Christ follower. It isn't just express faith for salvation, and then you're on your own. That which helps us see the importance of depending on an awesome God to be the God he promised to be and to do what he promised to do. And the key idea here. Maybe I'll just say next slide. I don't know what to do. I'm back to the beginning. eh? I'm going to go past that. Yeah, there we go. Sorry. So the key idea this morning is that in every circumstance of life, easy times, hard times, but in every circumstance of life, those who follow Christ should make God the object of their daily dependence. And, and why am I even doing this? Because as human beings, that's not our default setting. What's my default setting? Sadly, practical atheism. I mean, it's like acting as if there is no God. I got this. I'm okay. I can, I can, I can, I can do my routine. And we can walk through days or weeks and not pray, not depend, not look to him, and we don't want to get into that rut, right? We need to be men and women of dependence, and so this should be a core value. So think about the, the historical context of Second Chronicles 20. Yeah, um, Back there, can you just? I'll just say next slide, okay? This is I'm doing something wrong here. Is that okay? Okay, so for historical context of Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat was a generally good king, however, he made a horrible decision more than once in his reign to ally himself with others who were not good. He went into an alliance with Ahab, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Yeah, that's the husband of Jezebel. Kind of gives you an idea of the the bad choice that represented. 
and even gave his son Jehoram in marriage to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, Athaliah. And there were horrible ramifications of that in a few chapters afterwards. So, shortly before the events of Second Chronicles 20 and Second Chronicles 18, Joshua had traveled north to visit Ahab, the picture in the map, and joined Ahab in the battle against the Syrians. So on the right, the number 10 there is Ramoth Gilead. That was a city that had been in Israel's hands after Solomon fell and uh, the country divided. Syria just gobbled that town up in, the, in that chaos. And so Ahab, king of the northern kingdom, wants to get that back because it was part of Israel's territory. So this time Jehoshaphat is going up with Ahab. This is the second time Ahab has tried to do this. And they go in battle to try to capture Ramoth Gilead. And the, the whole story there, but let me just focus on the fact that in that battle Ahab dies and Jehoshaphat barely survives. It's a horrible defeat for both kings. One dies and the other one comes back with his tail between his legs to Jerusalem. And the events of Second Chronicles 20 follow his return to Jerusalem. If you looked at chapter 19 on your own, you would see there's some things that a prophet does in exhorting, rebuking Jehoshaphat that get him kind of back on the right road. But I want you to see here, next slide, the threat from Jerusalem, from, from Transjordan and so, so on. I'm going to look at the map in just a moment, but verses 1 and 2, I read here. And this, and after this, the events of up in uh, going after Ramoth Gilead in chapter 19 as well. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with some of them the Maunites, probably the Edomites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle, but they were sneaky about it. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they're, they're in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. So in Gedi is about 15, 20 miles from Jerusalem, kind of southeast, right on the shore of the Dead Sea. The Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Maunites, probably the Edomites, are trying to sneak up on the Israelites. They're trying to come through a back door to conquer Jerusalem, to catch Joshua by surprise. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more about their descent, but they're, from, they're kind of relatives of Israel. The Moabites and the Ammonites through Lot and his daughters, and the Edomites from Esau, the son of Isaac. So in the time when Moses at the time when Moses was leading Israel, and they wandered in the wilderness for almost 40 years, and they are on their way to conquer the land of Canaan, God had told them, don't harass or attack the Edomites, the Moabites, or the Ammonites. Leave them alone. They're protected. Centuries later, it seems that these three people thought this would be a great time to attack Joshua. Maybe when he went up north to be with Ahab and they were, were defeated by the Syrians, they thought, ah, if the Syrians can do it, we can do it too. They could take over Israel's land, take over Jerusalem. And when you think about the reason for this attack, next slide, just when you think about Israel, notice the blue line, there's this central ridge route that's the kind of Highway 5 of Israel and, and the inside. This is like the, the major artery for travel north and south. And what's happening here is the folks over here on the right side of the map, we'll see this again in a moment in another map, 
They're, they're kind of that box is where their Engedi is at the bottom part of it near the Dead Sea. And they're trying to get up through the back door to Jerusalem. And once they do that, they have control of the entire heartland of the country. I mean, this is, this is an important geopolitical strategy. And they're trying to accomplish this defeat of God's people. So then, next slide. We have, notice, Edom in the bottom right, Moab and Ammon, three people groups, had a lie together, and they probably met near where Moab is, and they crossed the Lisan, a tongue of land sticking out into the Dead Sea, and in that part where there is no water, to the left of Lisan, there would have been water then. But it's fairly shallow, no higher than their, their thighs. And so they waited across, and then they went up north, and that white box is around the city of Enge- or the, the settlement of Engedi. So our passage has said they're already at Hazazon Tamar, they're already at Engedi. Whoever saw it happening came up and squealed on them that they're ready to come. They're going to sneak up this back door. Next slide. So, and why? Because the, the plum they're going after is Jerusalem. And if they could sneak in from the back door and come and surprise them and and in that surprise overtake the city, three combined armies together, then they have control of the heartland. They could expand and they could take over the place. So the big prize was the control of Jerusalem. And how did Joshua respond to this bad news? Next slide. Joshua was afraid. And he resolved to seek the Lord. Then he proclaimed a fast for all Judah who'd gathered to seek the Lord. He was afraid. You know, it was an important thing for Joshua to realize this challenging reality. He didn't have what it would take to have victory here. He kind of realized he was toast. Probably wouldn't be able to gather his armies together, scattered in various outposts. And so what did he do as somebody who was afraid? He resolved to seek the Lord. That's great. I mean, that's, he looked in the right direction. As, as I talk to people who are going through challenging times, up the, the Dixie Fire in Northern California, seminary graduate, his mom and dad's house is just gone. The whole town is gone. And he's burdened for his parents, and we had a, an exchange, and I said in various words, look up, rest in a good God who can be someone in whom we can trust, even in the direst of circumstances. So he, he was afraid, he resolved to seek the Lord, he looked up, he realized, he looked around, looking around was of no value, it wasn't going to solve the problem, he looked up, and then he, and when, by looking up, it seems to me that Joshua did something that seemed to match, next slide, Seeming to match what Solomon expected from God's people. I'm not going to bring this passage across as a reality for us today, but it's communicating a truth related to this passage and has relevance to us. So Second Chronicles 7.14, the writer there says, And my people were called by my name if they humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their evil ways. A lot of this Jehoshaphat is doing. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Now there was a time when this prayer was in books, said this is the way to enjoy success in life today. I, I, would, I want to make sure we understand that, the, that their circumstances are not the same as ours. 
but Israel is a nation. They're, they're, a, they're a theocracy living in a land set apart by Yahweh, by God for them to possess. They're to pursue lives of covenant loyalty on that land. The Mosaic Law addressed all kinds of land-focused issues. And by giving them that land of promise, God intended that they would, by obeying the Mosaic Law, show each other, as well as the surrounding nations, the surpassing and awesome character of their incomparable God. And on that land, as a nation, with that responsibility as God's chosen people, nation, God promised to honor humility, repentance, and dependence. Humility, repentance, and dependence. So although our circumstances aren't the same as Joshua's day, and I don't want to cause confusion by that, it isn't like this, this verse comes across carte blanche. Land and nation and all of that are different. But the resonation point is that those key virtues are, we're going to see, populating this passage and are things that are found in the New Testament as well. Humility, repentance, and dependence. So Joshua shows that. Besides resolving to seek the Lord, and as a guy who's afraid because he realized he didn't have what it takes to face the challenge before him, he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. Verse 3, who gathered to seek the Lord. The Old Testament refers to fast to numerous passages with the, when they're in connection with the time of war or some other significant national event. And, and, and even though there are lots of passages, Joshua is the only king in Chronicles who calls a national fast. So this is a pretty big deal. And a fast was a time when it served to focus the attention of the ones fasting on their great God and his work to kind of take the focus off some of the things that normally occupy our time and attention and to think about who God is and what he does. And, and, and he's doing this with people from all the cities of Judah in verse 4. And this is everybody. Kids, moms, dads, kids. Now the point here is in, in, in the Mosaic Law, there's, there are a number of feasts. Three of those feasts are called pilgrimage feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And in those pilgrimage feasts, all the men of Israel were supposed to come to Jerusalem to worship God. It was a kind of a national cohesion event and a, an event to make sure everybody had a chance to worship God in the proximity of the temple to see the Shekinah glory rising above the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was located. And so this was like one of those when all the men would come and of course they'd bring their wives and their kids to be part of that and the population of Jerusalem would just explode. And so they're there, and they're, they're having this fast. Why? To focus their attention on the God from whom they desperately need help. They're going to depend on him. So that leads us to the, the prayer of Jehoshaphat, verses 5 to 12. This is powerful. By the way, if you're ever wanting to be encouraged or you're facing challenges, read some of the prayers that are found in the Old and the New Testament and you kind of get a focus on good biblical values. Things that should occupy our thoughts. So Joshua stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court around the temple building. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. 
In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land, the Canaanites, before your people Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, your covenant partner, the one that you initially pursued in Genesis 12? And they have lived, these Israelites have lived in it and have built you in it a sanctuary for your name, the temple, saying if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, which is where the Edomites were, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by stabbing us in the back, by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. It's a stewardship God had given them. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you while they're looking in the right place. Now think about this prayer, and I've given you the points there. There's praise. He extols Yahweh as the God of the fathers and the omnipotent ruler over all things. He's the king in heaven. Totally sovereign and in control. No one can stand against you. Power and might are in your hand. Remembrance. Verse 7. He chose Abraham his friend, his covenant partner, the father of the nation of Israel. And he promised him a, a nation, a people, a land, a bless, being a blessing. And he gave them the land in which they dwelt. So there's praise and remembrance to have a not just a faded memory, but a life-transforming remembrance of what God, God had done relationally. God had chosen Abraham, and he was faithful to the covenant he had made with Abraham and reaffirmed to Isaac and to Jacob and continued to deepen in the Mosaic covenant. And he was a God who was called Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. So they were remembering that. He isn't a promise big, deliver-nothing God. He isn't a God who promises to be with them and in the time of crisis, he's nowhere to be found. No, he's, they're remembering the ways that he had demonstrated his faithfulness. Trust. His people had built for him a sanctuary, a temple, not for their glory, but as part of what God required to give him a place to dwell in their midst. And by dwelling in their midst, he shows a commitment to them, a relational commitment to them. He's not just there because he has nowhere else to be. In fact, he's the God who occupies the heavens. He's everywhere. But he has a localized assembly in the temple to remind God's people that he is pursuing this relationship with them and living in their midst. There's trust. It isn't just a building, it's a sanctuary because God's presence is there. So they're saying this, seeing the Shekinah glory of cloud by day and fire by night that rose above the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, for almost all of Israel's history from the time they left Egypt. And that's the God they're saying they trust. They're looking to him. And then there's petition, verses 10 to 12a. What they need is deliverance from the very people whom they were respected in former times. They had honored God and not harassing them or attacking them. 
And now this people is rewarding them with evil. And so they're asking God, because they know they don't have what it takes to deliver us. Our God, will you not judge them? At the end of the passage, verse 12. And I already mentioned now when God approached, God's people approached the promised land, God had said, leave the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites alone, their relatives. You know, aren't supposed to conquer them. We're going to conquer the Canaanites who are in the land. They did that. And then um, now they're trying to sneak up and take over the place. And this isn't just real estate. This is a stewardship of land that God gave his people as a nation. And that nation on that land, this is a stick figure on, on the surface of the land, and on that land, as they lived their lives in obedience to the Mosaic Covenant, this is the ideal, whether it happened or not isn't the point. As they lived their lives in, in, in obedience to God's requirements, in an inside-out fashion, they were to put on display God's character. And this is part of God's agenda. This is part of his plan to bring a Messiah to pass. And the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites are trying to blow that up. So they're asking God to judge those Edomites and Ammonites and Moabites for trying to destroy them. And then you have this fifth one. Sorry, I think I, yeah, you got it. Thank you. Recognition of their inability on their own. The end of verse 12. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. But her eyes are on you. You know, the first four aspects of the prayer of Joshaphat, praise, remembrance, trust, petition, only makes sense if this last one is present. Because we don't do that unless we recognize the awesomeness of our God, who is the ultimate solution to the challenges we face with eternal significance. Like Joshua had had this day, we need to cultivate and maintain an acute awareness of our desperate need for God. All of this doesn't come across directly because we're not a nation, we're not in the Mosaic Covenant and all of that, but this looking to the right place because we really don't realize we don't have what it takes to live the life he's called us to live or get over the mountains that are in front of us. Next slide. Then we see the Lord's promised answer to prayer, verses 13 to 19. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And just to help you understand the context, what it mean all of you stood before the Lord? Before Moses offered sacrifices demanded by the Lord in, in the Mosaic Law, the Israelites brought, brought the required animals to be offered to the Lord. In Leviticus 9.5, the passage you have there on the screen they brought what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the whole community came forward and stood before the Lord. And the idea here is in the tabernacle structure, is what Leviticus says, you have this tent, and then the back third, the back part of that tent is a rectangular building. The front two-thirds of it is the holy place. The back third of it is the holy of holies where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and above the Ark of the Covenant was rising the, the visible presence of the Lord, called the Shekinah glory, the residing glory of God. Pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. And so when they offered, their sacrifice was offered in front of that building at the altar, the brazen altar. They were presenting it, guess where? They were before the Lord. God is in their midst. 
And so they're, they're, they're emphasizing the fact that as, as they're facing this challenge, all Judah stood, is standing before the Lord. The temple is right there. The Shekinah glory is rising above it. He is the one that makes the difference. That's not a building. That's just a place where God could dwell in their midst in visible ways to help remind them he's committed to that relationship. Next slide. Uh, Moses wrote about Israel's experience standing at the base of Mount Sinai as he prepared to go up and receive the law from Yahweh, the God of Israel. In Deuteronomy 4.10, the day you stood before the Lord your God as Israel was gathered around Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai and, God's, and Moses is going to go up and receive the law and you have the thunder, the lightning flashing, the thunder roaring, the dark clouds boiling. All of that's called a theophany, a, a, an appearance of God. In non-corporeal, non-bodily form to remind them that he is the one who's the author of this law. He is their sovereign, their creator, their redeemer. They're standing before the Lord. So the Lord, here, here's this prayer of Jehoshaphat. Verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel the son of Mattaniah, Levi, to the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. So the Spirit of the Lord prompted this prophet, this man's heart with the truth to tell Jehoshaphat. And so this person says, he's a Levite, Listen, all Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed at this great horde, because or for, the battle is not yours, but God's. I just wanted to see an important setting to this passage and another great one, First Samuel 17, with David and Goliath. There's a, a backstory here. And so, uh, next slide, after you'd have, don't be afraid or discouraged, you have a number of passages where God explicitly promises to his people, because he's the one who's putting them in the land of promise, he has no agenda to accomplish by putting them in this land where they are supposed to conduct their lives by obeying his law wholeheartedly and advertise a surpassing character to each other and to the surrounding world. He promises to help him against bigger dogs. They're going to try to come to get the Chihuahua here, right? The, they're a small nation, and he said he would give them victory. So Deuteronomy 31, 7 to 8 Moses then summoned Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel, be, be strong and courageous. Kind of like, don't be afraid and don't be dismayed. Similar tone. For you will go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. You will enable them to take possession of it. The Lord is the one who will go before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. They were going in to go toe-to-toe with the Canaanites, the city-state system of the Canaanites who had some military experience. And God said he would go before them. Joshua 1, 9, have not, Haven't I commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And he'll give them a victory. Next slide. Joshua ten twenty five. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do this to all the enemies you fight. Sadly, in 1 Samuel 17, which recounts Israel's account with the Philistines and their champion, Goliath, just the opposite thing happened. 
until David showed up. After Goliath stepped into the Elah Valley and gave his arrogant speech, boasted about what he could do, and he was a scary warrior, notice how Saul and Israel responded. When Saul and Israel, all Israel heard these, new, these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Just the opposite of what God is challenging Josh, Fad, and others. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. They lost their courage and they were terrified. You know, one of the interesting things in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, when you have this phrase in verse 15, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. There always is this for because right after it. He doesn't say, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. Ah, figure it out. You're on your own. Tough it out. We'll see how it goes. No, he, he reminds them there's something about him that makes it possible to not be discouraged or afraid. Because quite often as he is, the Lord is with you, the Lord is your God. In this case, he says, for the battle is not yours, but God's. On the one hand, this would have been true always. In any conflict between Israel and their attackers, if they would trust in their awesome God, he would, the battle would be his. Generally, God demanded that the Israelites grab their swords, their bows and arrows, their shields, their, their weaponry. They would grab their stuff. They would engage the enemy in battle, knowing it was there without hope on their own trusting that he would fight before them, multiply their efforts. And he did that on several occasions. In the conquest of Canaan, it wasn't like, hey, I'm going to eat grapes and be fanned in my tent and let me know when you're done so I can come conquer the land. No, they engaged the enemy in battle. That was the normal practice. And God had said, if you trust me, you'll have the victory against a massively greater foe. Asa conquered a countless numbered Egyptian army. And it was God who enabled him. But in this case, there's something unique. He's not asking them to pick up their swords and take their bows and arrows. He wants to glorify himself in a different way. So he says to them, after the battle is not yours, but God's, verse 16, tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Z's. That's the sneaky backdoor route. I'll show you the map in a moment. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord in your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. He wants them to understand the kind of a God he is. He doesn't need their help. He wants it because it's an important part for them to learn that they have a role to play, that he wants to multiply their efforts. He wants them to choose to engage the enemy. And he enables them. He multiplies their efforts. In this case, he's going to do it differently. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord in your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. So, he tells them not to be afraid or discouraged. This seems like an allusion to when Israel crossed the Red Sea. Next slide. Yeah, I'll get that in a minute. In in Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14, see if you hear something similar. Moses said to the people standing in front of the Dead Sea with the Egyptian army behind them, separated only by the Shekinah glory, the visible presence of the Lord. 
I mean, they were within hearing distance. You could hear those horses stomping, and you could hear the shouts of anger, and the, and the clanking of the swords and the spears. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation he will provide for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. And that's exactly what happened when they crossed the Red Sea. Before they were at the other side, God set aside his glory and they came charging after them. And the Lord dealt the defeating blow by having the waters of the Red Sea pour over that army, destroying them. And notice in, in verse 17, it, began, it begins and ends with this up in, up in verse 15. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. In the end of verse 17, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. The Lord will be with you. This is a moment of decision for Jehoshaphat and his fellow Israelites. Yahweh, is, the Lord has told him what he will do. He will give them victory on his own over these attacking enemies. But it's theory at this point. What must Israel decide the same thing we have to do each day in some ways. To wholeheartedly believe that God is the God described in Scripture. He's able to do exactly what He promised to bring it to pass. To trust Him implicitly and totally to do that. And so, how does Jehoshaphat and the Judeans in the southern kingdom respond to what God said this Verses 18 and 19 of the quote on the screen is about this. Then Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord to worship him. Then Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel, shouting with a loud voice, bowed down, down with his face to the ground, fell down before the Lord to worship him, stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel. They were embracing the fact that the God who was is. And the God who did does. They were resting in that truth. Probably slept fairly well that night because they knew God was going to take care of that. And Merrill is a great guy, commentator, who wrote this. Joshua had exercised enormous faith and submission to Yahweh by kneeling down and with all the people prostrating himself in worship before the king of battle, who, though not having yet displayed his power in this instance, he did it years before, with another people, in another setting. But who he was, was totally reliable for them to trust he would be that in their day. He was to be trusted on the basis of his mighty acts on Israel's behalf throughout sacred history. So next slide, we'll run through three of these to kind of show you the lay of the land. So Joshua is up there in Jerusalem. They're going to come down to Tekoa to, to around, you see Joshua, the blue letter Joshua, then Tekoa, 15 miles or so. And they're going to go past Tekoa, and there's a kind of a flat area before you hit the rougher area, the Judean wilderness. The red arrow from the Dead Sea there from En Gedi is going to, they're going to come up this ascent of Z's. See, it's in white there. Next slide. So this is looking from the Dead Sea. This is on the, on the right side is the 
Nachal David, the Wadi David, and the left side is the Nachal Arugot. And this big ridge between the two canyons is called the Ascent of Ziz. And that white line is how the Edomites and Moabites would have come up. That's the ridge line they're getting on top of. And then they're going to go through the Judean wilderness and head where that arrow heads up to the area of Tekoa and the Herodium. That little red area is where we're going to hike if you come on the Israel trip. So you should come. It's a fun hike. Okay, next slide. And that's the switchback trail up that ridge line that would get them to the top. I mean, if, if, if somebody was there waiting to attack you, you'd be toast. But this is the sneaky way to get in. Nobody's going to see you most of the time because nobody's in the Judean wilderness. I mean, it's a barren, dry place. So you can get in there and not have people know you're coming, which was their plan. So then, uh, prosecution of the battle, verses 20 to 30. Next slide. Jehoshaphat's army marches to battle. And they rose early in the morning. They marched to battle. They rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Joshua stood and said, Hear me, Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. Believe, rest in, accept by faith what the Lord has promised, and even what he's taught in his word that he fights on behalf of his people. This is not up for grabs. This is not a debated issue. Have confidence. And when he had taken counsel of the people and appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in his holy attire, in their holy attire, as he went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. So he wants his people, he challenges them as they're in Jerusalem about to head out to Tekoa. Rest in confidence that God will do what he says. Believe what he said in his word about fighting on behalf of his people if you trust him. And he had a choir, a large group of Israelites march before this army and sing this song commonly found in the Psalms. Next slide. There it is. Yeah, next slide. In Psalm 130, uh, yeah, so there, it's in the general area of the battle. Tukor's in the red box inside the larger box. Next slide. Psalm 136, one, I left something out. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his faithful love endures forever. What that is, is in, first, in Second Chronicles 20, 21, it has give thanks for the Lord and it doesn't have the free is good part, but for his faithful love endures forever. And there's a, there's a modern folk song that uh, believing uh, Messianic Jews uh, sing that uh, is, is a great song that says this. I'm not a great voice, but let me sing it for you. Just it's kind of fun to hear it in Hebrew. And you're looking at Psalm 136.1. O du ladonai ki tov, ki la olam chasdo. O du ladonai ki tov, ki la olam chasdo. O du, thanks it sing. O du, o du, o du, o du, o du ladonai, the Lord, ki tov, because he's good. Ho do, ho do, ho do, ho do, ho do, Ladonai Kitov. We'll sing it together if you come to Israel with me. So, as they're marching out of Jerusalem, they're going to sing this song. Even, even not knowing for sure what was going to happen, the human side of the equation, which we all face, right? 
Something happens, a diagnosis, a challenging circumstance, a loss of a job. We don't know what the end of the story is on the human side of the equation. I understand not knowing. In this case, not knowing the human side didn't change that God's people trusted God to be the God he said he was, the divine side. The God will be good. He'll do what's best. Doesn't always match our script. He can be trusted, though. So that's um, Joshua's army marches to battle. Better be God intervenes for Joshua in Israel. He does what he promised. Next slide. So this is looking due east. To the left of us is Jerusalem, and this way is Bethlehem, Tekoa. This is a kind of a flat area, and then it gets pretty rough. There were all the arrows point to. That's part of the Judean wilderness. And this kind of flattish area is where this probably was the battleground. As they came up the ascent of Z's, and they came through that rough terrain through canyons. And when it opened out here, they could spread out as a battle force. And that's where I envision, and many do, that this next set of events takes place. So at the very moment the, crowd, the, the choir begins singing as they're leaving Jerusalem... I mean, they're, you're, they're not even a half a mile down the road, and they're singing this song. At that very moment, the events we're describing are, are going to describe here are taking place, that they didn't know about, they didn't see, they saw the results of it at the end of the day. At the very moment, the choir begins singing, God arranged for the decimation of the enemy forces who killed each other. As Joshua and God's people were marching toward this strong attacking force, singing this song, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy, his covenant love, his loyalty endures forever. God was demonstrating his awesome power on behalf of his people. And so it says here, when they began to sing, verse 22, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah. They imagine they're out in that battlefield there. So they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting themselves to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy each other. All that's happening as they're walking, they're unsuspecting. How's God going to do this? Praise God, they had confidence he was. And they're able to see the result of this. And again, in most cases, God promised to multiply the efforts of Israelites taking up their weapons and fighting with the enemy and God would give them victory that they didn't deserve for their efforts. He was the one who deserved glory. This time, like with Hezekiah and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, God did that to demonstrate his power. So we, we read here, they're pro Israel approaching Israel. All this stuff has happened. The there are three groups who fought against one another, eventually killing everybody. They're done. And then, by the way, when you think about what God does here, killing the enemy forces, or the normal thing he did, requiring that God people would, would engage the enemy forces, trusting in him to multiply their efforts beyond what they could do on their own, the one constant or same reality in both kinds of victories was the demand for and the practice of genuine dependence on God to be the God he promised to be, to do what he had promised to do. Well, I'm going to come to this at the end, but part of the big idea of all of this is um, 
as we realize we're facing a circumstance that dwarfs us. And you can do your best to have victory over that all on your own. We need to realize that we don't have what it takes. And as we give, make decisions, as we give effort, as we do things that are wise, God will multi- can multiply our efforts beyond what we could do on our own. I mean, I, I use this illustration. I, my wife's name is Martha Ann. I love her to the end of the world. I mean, I, I'm grateful she's in my life. Married 41 years. Very patient woman. And, uh, but I will tell you, as much as I long to love her in a way that glorifies God, I don't have what it takes to do that. I can love her better than Bob or Sam or Joe down the road. But that's not what I'm called to. I'm called to love her as Christ loved the church. And as, as much as it pains my heart to realize that I'm by nature selfish and sinful, I'm pure, I, she's my only love, I'm grateful for that. I have to realize that for me to love her as Christ loved the church, which is a passion of my heart, what do I have to do? I have to realize I don't have what it takes. I have to ask God to, by his spirit, multiply my efforts beyond what I could do. Because I'm a boneheaded heart, right? Selfish and sinful. I I tell her this. I, I pray almost every morning and day that God would, with her on the phone, she's in Montana right now, but at home too. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to love Martha and better. See, this is the whole thing I'm trying to get to, and we're going to wrap up here in a moment, and I'll, I'll conclude, but what God longs to do is to have his people depend on him, to not necessarily have the same script they think they'd like to have, but to be able to honor his name in a way that's beyond what they could do, what they could do on their own. He had let him multiply your efforts, your labors, your, your purposes, your, your decisions to be a brighter light, to be a better husband, your wife, and so on. So, letter C, next slide. Joshua's army gathers plunder, verses 24 to 26. When, the, when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, the tower that they could see over this valley, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying in the ground. None had escaped. And you're thinking, you're, you're coming to an army that's going to whomp you, and God took care of that. When Joshua and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things which they took for themselves until they could, they could carry no more. There were, they were three days in taking the spoil, and it was, so, it was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the Valley of Barakah, which is they call this valley, the Valley of Blessing. Not just because they have all this stuff in their pockets and their wagons. It's a, it's a place where God intervened in human history that conformed to what he said he was and what he does. So can you imagine what the Israelites thought as they came into view of the carnage on the fields in front of them? Instead of encountering an invading army of great strength, they saw nothing but corpses in the carnage of battle. Defying human explanation, God did what he promised. The Israelites eventually, over three days, gathered so much plunder, they called it the Valley of Blessing. 
Instead of being plundered and conquered by this invading army, they're able to plunder the possessions of the army due to God's intervention. And then the last point, uh, Joshua returns to Jerusalem, almost last point. They hold an assembly. How did they return? Verse 27. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Joshua at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. And how could they return with this hard attitude? Next slide. You got it. You're on top of things. Thank you. How could they return with this hard attitude? It says here, for the Lord enabled them to rejoice over their enemies. It's the Lord who enabled them to do that. And what did they do after they returned to Jerusalem? Verse 28, they came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came in all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Joshua was quiet for his God gave him rest all around. But that harps, lyres, and trumpets is a very concrete way of celebrating in worship because the Lord deserved all the credit for their deliverance. Now think about this. Next slide. You got it. Sorry, back. You got it. You're so smart. Thank you. God's people, and I put this up here just so you might remember it, but God had done something stupendous, really, really great. God's people had genuinely and wholeheartedly trusted that Yahweh, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God would do it. He explicitly promised in his word he had done that. It was totally great. But in response, God's chosen people fervently rejoiced and enthusiastically worshipped him through the words of praise, through the playing of those instruments. Here's the question. I'm asking you and I'm asking myself. Do we also have hearts of praise longing to worship our great God for the great deliverance he has provided us as we enjoy salvation in Christ or receive strength for each day, drawing on his all-sufficient grace in challenging times? And the response coming back from this amazing victory for which they had no responsibility, God did it. Their hearts were overflowing with joy and praise and celebration. And as I said before, we're not in the same circumstance. They won't find the same kind of victories. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. We're not a theocratic nation living in a land set apart by God. But even some of what he promised Israel, like concrete victory over human emanation, aren't things he promises us. But regardless... Do we trust God to be who he promised to be and do what he promised to do in our lives, and our challenges, even in our blessings? And then as a result of him providing us salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, or as a result of him strengthening us for some daunting challenge, do we kind of kick our heels? Do we celebrate his greatness? Are we more motivated to pursue lives that advertise his surpassing character? Does it affect the way we live, we engage with each other, the way we look up? And remind ourselves down the road in tough times that the God we serve is a God who can do as well. And the last point I'll just mention, they have peace and rest. And so, humanly speaking, circumstantially speaking, all the other nations left them alone because they didn't want to go against that God. But I think there's something else I want you to understand because before he gave them rest, end of verse 30, on every side, 
And this rest is very, very concrete, a concrete reality, no attackers, peaceful circumstances in which to conduct their lives. What about us? We don't have that same kind of rest promised to us. It isn't like, you know, a town council that's opposing some plan of the church to do something. You're you pray in a precatory prayer on them and hope that all their houses collapse. God's not going to do that, right? He's not going to remove obstacles just in that same way. He can overrule in circumstances, but this is pretty concrete. I want you to think with me in Christ. Next slide. Next slide. What about us? Freedom from the attack of external enemies is not what we can enjoy in Christ. However, in Christ, we can enjoy the rest of salvation. Look forward to the rest of God's presence in heaven. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. And I think this is fundamentally and first a salvation rest. This is a people who are staggering in life all on their own and don't have a clue. They have no eternal destiny that they have confidence in. He offers them rest. I think there is an application for us as believers as well. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because God shares the load. That's the rest he's offering. Next slide, Hebrews 4 refers to the rest that God gives us as part of his salvation, of our salvation. And again, there's all kinds of things you could say here, but I'm just going to make a primary point. For if Joshua, and I have added, in leading Israel to occupy a conquered land, had given them rest from traveling around the wilderness, from, you know, just being intense, they could have a place where they could set up housekeeping or live. For if Joshua had given them a rest, God would have not have spoken later about another day. It wasn't a perfect rest still. There were Canaanites yet to conquer. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people in the sense of this what he wants us to have. For the person who has entered his rest, salvation, has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to, every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. The writer of Hebrews is not telling his readers that they can take it easy, that God no longer requires any good deeds or works or obedience, that we're just all in the heaven-bound Pullman. We can put up our feet and do whatever we want because we're in. Now, the rest he's talking about is more embracing a confidence in what he has done. So God still expects his followers to obey him to do good works. Faith without works is dead. But here's whatever we can do pales in comparison to what he has done that has provided us the salvation that we can, in, in which we can rest. You see, however, the, the, the key point here is that what God has done is eternally significant, is never-ending, never fades. Whatever we can do pales in comparison. Our works, as important as they are, as God requires them, obeying, avoiding those things prohibited with the heart of loyalty and genuineness. As we conduct our lives of obedience to our great God, what we do is not as eternally significant is what God has done. And as we conduct our life of obedience to our great God, our focus should not be on ourselves. You know, you did a great job, Mike. did a great job. No, not at all. When we obey. As we pursue lives of obedience, which are really, if I could use the idiom, small potatoes, 
we should be resting in what, what he has done, is doing, and will do, which are gigantic potatoes, right? I mean, what we're doing is not what we're resting. It isn't like I'm thinking about good deeds, what I did good yesterday, or, or whatever. I'm thinking about this awesome God who's intervened in human history in my life to take me on my feet out of the out of the miry clay and set them upon a rock and establish my going. Wow. I was unworthy of that intervention of God in human history in my life, in my heart. And so what I do isn't like, do you see Mike Crisani? No, not at all. It's, do you see this awesome God who's at work? He must increase, I must decrease. We rest in the salvation we have, and we obey as an overflow of our heart. But that resting is embracing by faith what he has done in salvation. We're dependent on this one for our lives. And the result of that is the life that honors his name. So to wrap up, final slide, or one of the last slides. Yeah, I one more slide. Conclusion here. Just uh, remember the key idea where I started. In every circumstance of life, those who follow Christ should make God the object of their daily dependence. And again, on one hand, I say that and you say, well, duh. I mean, that's pretty old news. And I agree. That's what all Christ followers are supposed to do. But here's another question, the painful one. Do I, do you conduct our lives that way? As I started with, what what is your or my default setting as we live life? I've got this. No problem. I'll let you know, God, when I need a hand. But I got this covered. I'm doing great. All on my own. Kind of that practical atheism we have a tendency to. Whether those words are actually part of your thoughts or your actions often say this is the question. The fact that we don't turn to God first, that we don't regularly and fervently pray, that we don't seek God's enablement of a spirit to live the lofty life he set before us, all point to our independent, self-reliant spirit. And may God help us to realize that we don't have what it takes on our own to pursue what really matters for eternity. And this isn't an option. For us to live the life he's called us to live, to be a bright light, to... Be a testimony to each other, to husbands love your wives, wives love and submit to your husbands, to be a witness to the lost, and on the list goes. For us to be able to do core values that God has given us will only happen if we depend on him. Because friends, I don't, not like you, but if you're like me, you don't have what it takes to do what God's called you to do without depending on God and his spirit to Multiply our efforts. Whether it be salvation, so as sinners by nature and conduct, we have no hopes in ourselves and ourselves to receive forgiveness for our sins and bridge the chasm between us and the holy God of the universe. We can never attain the righteousness to enter God's presence besides not being able to remove our sin. It's only as we realize our helplessness before this God, see the darkness of our sins, repent of those sins and embrace by faith dependence. The salvation God offers us through Christ that we can become his children. And if you're here today and you haven't exercised, repented of your sins and exercised that faith to embrace the gift of salvation, 
I'll pray for you at the end and pray that you would talk to one of us about what it means to know Christ as Savior and God as Heavenly Father. So when we, for us to come to Christ, we must totally depend on, trust in what Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection to receive the salvation provided as a gift to us. We start our life as Christ followers through dependence. How about life as a Christ follower? Even though I totally wholeheartedly believe in eternal security, the biblical truth that we never lose our salvation, I also believe that God calls us to live out our salvation through daily faith. I'm not exercising daily faith hoping to be saved each day, but I'm living by faith like Paul said in Galatians 2.20. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. From beginning to end, God wants his followers to trust in him as the great God of the universe, to be and do what he promised he is and does. To live that life that points to him best. Prayer of my heart is may we realize that we don't have what it takes on our own to pursue the lofty life he set before us. And I don't want you to stay there. But may God help us to pursue lives for his glory because we depend on him for his daily enablement. If you're here today and God is not your Heavenly Father and Christ is not your Savior and Lord, you need to repent from your sins and wholeheartedly trust that God will indeed provide you salvation if you embrace by faith the salvation he offers. And if that's you today, don't wait. I pray that God would make the weight of sin inescapable in your lives and you would see your absolute hopelessness on your own and you'd understand the beauty of the gospel and talk to one of us about what it means to be saved. How about believers, Christ followers? Are you facing challenges in life? Who doesn't, right? Have some hard times? Stop trying to do what's impossible. Just living a godly life by your own strength. Because we always crash and burn when we do that. Instead, each day, ask and trust God to enable you to conduct the life he has set before you, a life that points to him. Keep reminding yourself of the truth of the gospel. Think through what Christ has done on your behalf through salvation. That should then help you have this fire in your heart to live the life he's called you to live. Here's a short prayer I often pray for myself. And for those in my life and ministry, in my closing prayer, I'm, I'll start with this and then wrap up my prayer. And it's on the last slide there. And so I just put it there in case you wanted a PDF of it. Mark could give it to you, but I'm going to pray. So I'll leave it up there after I pray if you wanted to write it down. But Great and awesome God, I do pray that through the enablement of your spirit, you would help me and these brethren to be better than we can be on our own. And Lord, I pray that in the same way you'd help us by your spirit to do what we can't do on our own. All for your great glory. Lord, I thank you so much as the great God of the universe that you intervened in human history and sent your son for a sinful humanity. Knowing that you knew who would accept Christ, you chose them and all of that, but that you provided the, the basis for salvation that we could embrace 
through repentance and faith that you help create. And I thank you for these believers here who long to live lives for your glory, to have solid marriages and be good parents and to witness to the lost and be pure, live pure lives and all kinds of things. I, I do pray that you would help us to understand that just like we didn't have what it take, took for salvation, that we don't have what it takes to live that life well. In fact, we'll never do it perfectly because we're boneheads by nature. We rely on ourselves. We're selfish and sinful by nature. That, that resonant weight. I pray that you would help us realize that we desperately need your enablement. We need you. And I pray as we live life looking to you to help make us, as we engage the, the battle of life, you would multiply our efforts for your glory to help us be better than we could be, to do more than we could have done in a way that points to you. And if there is anyone here today who doesn't know you as their Heavenly Father, uh, Christ is not their Savior, they don't have the confidence of sins being forgiven, heaven being theirs, give them the courage to speak to one of the church leaders about what it means to deal with sin and what it means to embrace the gospel. For your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.